Well, welcome. Uh, I'm Tom Patterson. Uh, Alex Jones, the director of the Shorenstein Center, is unable to be here today, so I'm sitting in this position for Alex. And uh, delighted by the turnout, I think uh, four years ago it had been tough to fill this room with someone talking about business uh, but, uh, and the economy, but things have changed, and, uh, and we're just delighted to have uh, Matthew Bishop here. Uh, he's the American uh, business editor of the New York uh, and the New York bureau chief for The Economist, uh, author of many books, uh, just off the presses, 2010, uh, The Road from Rune, uh, another book uh, quite recent, uh, Philanthrop, uh, Capitalism, and, uh, and then another book, uh, Economics A to Z, uh, and uh, Matthew's going to talk today uh, about uh, the economic crisis and particularly uh, the media aspect uh, of the economic crisis. Uh, Matthew, welcome. Well, thank you. Um, and uh, this is uh, it's great so many of you turned out. Um, I want to talk a bit about this new book. I'm actually this afternoon, later on, going to be at the Hauser Center talking about philanthropic capitalism, which is really about giving and how philanthropy can... Uh, be much more effective than it, than it has been at times in the past and can really solve some of the world's biggest problems. But this is really about the crisis we're in at the moment. Um, and this book, How to Revive Capitalism and Put America Back on Top, The Road from Ruin, that we, we've just got uh, just put out now, um, which is really the product of my own and uh, my co-author's reflections on what happened um, over the last three or four years and how we get out of this mess. Um, I come at this uh, story as a journalist that's been based in New York for nine of the last 12 years. Um, from 97 to 2002, I was the Wall Street editor for The Economist, and I was back in London as our business editor, and then came back to New York in 2005 to really oversee our business coverage uh, across America. Um, and. The starting point of this book is, is the statement that on the 15th of September 2008, uh, capitalism as we knew it ended, um, and that a debate ought to begin as to what we could do to improve the version that we had so that it actually works better in future. Uh, September the 15th, 2008 was the day Lehman Brothers was uh, allowed to go bust. Um, I have to say that that day was a shock to me. I didn't think we would get to a situation where um, the entire global banking system had to be bailed out by the governments of the world. Um, and I say that having written about bubbles and the vulnerabilities of the financial system for much of the previous sort of 15 years. Um, as a journalist, I, you know, I think I, the day I moved to New York in November 97, um, I'd I wrote a piece about how there was clearly a bubble in the stock market at the time. Um, I wrote about the housing bubble in about 2004. Um, in a special report I did for The Economist in 2002 on capitalism and its troubles, I highlighted the fact that there were all these risk management system problems in the banking system which could all work in tandem with each other to create this sort of implosion effect that we saw. But even though I'd written all that, it still came as a, a, a big shock to me that things went as badly wrong as they did. 
And that's why I really wanted to write this, this book to try and make sense of, of that experience and to try and figure out some ideas going forward. I want to read very briefly um, from chapter nine of the book called We Are the Change. Um, I don't know where I got that from. Making the right choices uh, means increasing the wisdom of crowds. And I'm really addressing in this chapter the problem of bad politics and how uh, one of the <coughs> biggest dangers that we face at the moment is a lack of political will to do the hard things that need to be done. Um, bad politics lay behind many of the failures to tackle the flaws in the US financial sector before the bubble burst. And in some cases, such as Congress's cheerleading for mortgage lending, bad politics added flaws, bad politics cowed the government into letting Lehman Brothers fail and worsened the market panic that resulted when Congress rejected the first version of the bank rescue plan, bad politics constrained the stimulus package, ruled out the quickest, cleanest way of sorting out the banks, and was the biggest obstacle to the fundamental regulatory reform that the crisis showed to be long overdue. And then a bit further on, so what can be done about these pressures to help our politicians make the right choices now and in the future? In the end, the answer must lie with the media that debate the policy options and the voters whom the politicians court, as well as with the politicians themselves. In short, when it comes to running the, the economy better, all of us need to raise our game. The media, with a few exceptions, at times credulously pumped air into the bubble as it inflated in the early years of the new millennium. Too many journalists did far too little rigorous scrutiny of what was driving the boom economy. Since the bubble burst, this has changed, perhaps too far, as the media have helped to lower confidence with their sometimes overgloomy reporting. True, the celebrity <coughs> economist has returned. Nobel Prize-winning economist and New York Times columnist Paul Krugman has actually started writing about economics rather than his old obsession railing against the transgressions of the Bush administration. Um, once our arcane economics jargon, such as quantitative easing, is bandied about on the evening news, yet it's too early to call this a renaissance of the financial media. News coverage is still too simplistic and orientated around blame and denial. The media need to think about their responsibilities and look at their, pra their practices. Um, so I do think this is, uh, that the media is pro-cyclical or has certainly had that tendency within it to puff air into the bubble when it's going, getting bigger and then to uh, pile in with negativity after things go, go wrong. Um, in December 08, around, uh, there was a, one opinion poll found that 77% of Americans thought that media was making the economic situation worse by reporting too much negativity. Um, this is a pretty much standard uh, phenomenon we see after every bubble bursts. Um, back in the uh, South Sea bubble period in Britain, uh, there were lots of pamphleteers that were sort of blaming the investor class for, for what went wrong. Um, the tulip bubble, which is the first great bubble, um, the media clearly contributed to the, the notion that this was all sort of wild public uh, ignorance and exuberance gone, gone mad. Uh, there was a great story about how a sailor was caught eating a tulip bulb, which he thought was an onion, and it turned out the tulip bulb was worth thousands of guilders or whatever. So this was sort of evidence of the public's ignorance, but in fact, these, many of these things never happened. But nonetheless, there does seem to be a real problem time and time again that the media um, you know, has this pro-cyclical tendency. Um, surprisingly little good analysis has been done of this, um, but there are broadly speaking three, um, three theories that are out there as to why the media seems to have this tendency. Um, some of you will have seen the, 
the so-called Kramer Stewart Smackdown on The Daily Show, uh, where Jon Stewart uh, engaged with Jim Kramer, the host of CNBC's Mad Money, over uh, Kramer's alleged cheerleading of, of, the, of the bubble. Um, and the theory there is really that basically much of the financial coverage that we get uh, in the media nowadays is about entertainment rather than about information. Um, so for Kramer's Mad Money, you might also add all those amazing shows about housing that took place, uh, that seem to dominate the airwaves, uh, trading spaces, house hunters, sell this house, and my house is worth what? Uh, a show which I guess has taken on new meaning since, um, since the bubble burst, but anyway. Um, all this media that seems to be sort of designed to sort of play to people's prejudices and psychological biases, uh, wanting to, to, to sort of <coughs> extrapolate trends rather than undermine it. Uh, the second theory, which is really articulated by Bob Schiller, who is the economist who coined the phrase irrational exuberance that, um, that uh, Greenspan used uh, after hearing him make a presentation. Schiller's argument is that um, the media is largely uh, making these mistakes because of ignorance. Now, driven as their authors are by competition for readers, listeners, and viewers, media accounts tend to be superficial and thus to encourage basic misconceptions about the market, um, Schiller argues. Um, and I think one thing that's clear is that during the last decade and a half, um, more and more people, uh, as financial media grew as a revenue source and the rest of the media felt growing pressure, um, people that wanted to go into journalism uh, often wishing to cover nothing more than celebrities, found themselves having to cover derivatives and so forth because that's where the jobs were. And whether the quality of their reporting was all that it should be, um, I'll leave to your imagination. Um, the third theory is, was produced by um, two economists, Van Dyck and Zingales, um, which is really about an access model uh, to, uh, of, the of the financial media to businesses, which is that basically access to the good stories is really tightly controlled. Um, therefore, those journalists that want to get access have to uh, cultivate their sources. Um, during <coughs> bubbles, the value of, or the, the cost of, pa of bad news about a company rises, so companies have more and more incentive to ration bad news and overemphasize the good news uh, during, during upturns. When a bubble bursts, on the other hand, uh, access to, to companies matters much less to journalists and, um, and they feel freer to say what they really think. So if we looked at, for example, the uh, Matt Taibbi uh, piece on Goldman Sachs in the Rolling Stone last year, which I thought was a very interesting example of how a contrarian view came from outside the main media, um, where he called Goldman a giant squid uh, sucking blood from the universe or something like that. And, um, <laughs> Basically, a lot of journalists have been very afraid of writing about Goldman Sachs up until that point, I think, in any critical way. As soon as um, it was revealed that someone in Rolling Stone could do so and get away with it, um, everybody else piled in like, a, like, a, uh, like a, in a school playground where a bully gets punched by a little guy and suddenly everyone realizes the bully's crying so they're going to hit him as well. Um, very similar model, I think. So. Um, I'm not sure what I think. I'd be interested to hear your reactions to some of these models. I think their theory is out there. I think they're getting at a certain element of the media, which is this pro-cyclicality. Um, clearly, the financial environment over the last few years and the, tr the technological changes in the media um, 
probably are worsening this, this tendency because um, companies are spending more and more money on their public relations and their spin at the same time as the media is more and more uh, aware of it, its competitive uh, difficulties and desperate to uh, up ratings um, to attract advertising and so forth. Firms are increasingly aware of the power they have to use their advertising budgets to put pressure on, on the media. At The Economist, we had an experience in early, the early part of this last decade where we reported a story about AIG, which um, said it was its shares were massively overvalued and there were huge risks hidden in its accounts, a story that proved out to be, to be absolutely right. Um, within a day of that story appearing, as I write in the book, um, they cancelled all advertising with the Economist Group, which was a million dollars. It was our biggest single advertiser. Fortunately, the culture of the Economist respects those Chinese walls, and that became a badge of honour for us. But it was very noticeable that uh, no other new media outlet picked up that story, um, and they did continue to pick up their advertising from AIG until the point where Spitzer went after AIG, and, and suddenly AIG started to fall apart. Um, there are big pressures on the media, and I'm not being critical of anyone in saying that. I think there's a, a huge pressures out there. And then there's litigation, again, um, particularly for any of the media that are exposed to Britain or Europe, um, where we don't really have any protections of free speech that, are, uh, that don't involve expending a lot of money in court. Um, Ponzi, actually, the famous Ponzi of the Ponzi scheme was a famously litigious uh, manager but uh, who managed to sort of postpone his being exposed for quite a while by going to court a lot. Um, but in, in Britain it's a lot worse. Um, so what can we do about this pro-cyclicality in the media? Um, you know, the, during the recession, the Great Depression, the New York Times used to make sure it always put a positive note in every headline according to Floyd Norris, one of their veteran economics writers just to make sure that it couldn't be accused of shouting fire in a burning theatre. Um, I'm not sure you can get away with that today. Um, an idea we float in the book is that the Fed ought to at least monitor the net bullishness of the media um, and, and publish that as, a, as, as data for the economy. Um, as, and we in The Economist have a thing called a, the R-word index, which measures the number of uses of the word recession. Uh, during the main, in the main media over time, which is sometimes a good leading indicator of whether there's a recession, but sometimes more of a leading indicator of what the mood of the media is rather than what's actually happening in the economy. Um, the book uh, makes a powerful argument, I hope if you find it powerful, that we all, that essentially having a financially literate citizenry is uh, a key to well-functioning democracies. and. Uh, we worry that the financial literacy in, in, in America and certainly other parts of the world is appalling and that no one really takes this seriously as an educational challenge. Um, one of the things that I guess when you publish a book nowadays you have to do is to launch a campaign and so we will be launching a campaign probably through Huffington Post to sort of really try and raise the seriousness of the debate about <coughs> how we promote financial literacy as an essential ingredient of of democracy. Um, and I think ultimately you know, the media is a place where we need to start by making sure that our journalists actually understand what they're writing about, um, which is, as I say, not always the case. The other thought, just to leave you with before we throw it open to discussion, <coughs> is whether 
the business model of me the media is now um, capable of delivering the kind of uh, really deep, incisive reporting on the economy that's required if, until we get the financially literate uh, <coughs> citizenry. Um, you know, I think part of the media that's come under most pressure from the changing business environment, the uh, the costs, the the loss of classified advertising, and so forth, all the familiar trends that we've talked about with how the internet is changing the world, um, is investigative journalism. Um, you know, we have seen the creation of one specialist, philanthropically funded journalism organisation, ProPublica, ironically funded by one of the worst sellers of subprime mortgages. Uh, and nonetheless, we won't dwell on that. Um, but I mean, I wonder to what extent, you know, ultimately, those of us that care about truth and uh, accuracy in, in society need to actually recognise that this is not going to be delivered necessarily by a commercial model and that we need to to find, um, find other solutions um, to, to fund the media. I'm inherently sceptical about, I don't like that thought because not least I work for a commercial organisation that we feel we have very high uh, emphasis on truth and are a profitable business, but you know, I know we don't do as much investigative reporting maybe as, as uh, would be necessary to, to really make sure that um, we were getting to the bottom of what was going on. Uh, so I wonder whether, you know, I, I hope we can have a serious debate about what forms the media will have to, to adopt in order to make sure we get the kind of deep reporting that's needed. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Um, there's a, maybe a fourth explanation for why the media sort of miss the mark so often. Um, there have been some studies that have been done, uh, not simply in terms of economic trends, but um, other trends, the trends in crime. Uh, know, what's happening in conflict zones, whether they're getting better or getting worse. Um, and what these studies suggest is that the media always kind of overshoot the mark, uh, that they're always uh, late in getting to sort of change. Right. And the argument is that, is that these meta-narratives get embedded in reporting, and they get to be the way the journalists think about a particular situation. The economy's getting better, the economy's getting worse. <coughs> Crimes increasing, crimes decreasing, and the like. Um, and that basically that frame then that they bring to the situation kind of has a lot of influence on sort of what they look for out there when reporting circumstances and situations arise. Um, and it's not until it's obvious <laughs> that they've missed the mark that they begin to kind of do the slow turn that a battleship does in the sea, and sort of then they pick up and another meta narrative takes over. Now, if that's true, it's, it's hard to think about how you break the pattern, right? And, and it's really hard to think about how you get out of that situation. What would be the kind of the big thing that would have this big, large group of people called journalists sort of somehow doing the turn more quickly and, and closer to the real events that are occurring? Yeah, I mean, I suppose I, I view that as part of the entertainment type dynamics that in a sense um, you know journalists I think by nature are contrarian people they like to challenge you know they challenge the, the conventional wisdom now the question is to what extent <coughs> to does the economics of the industry now uh, 
actually mean that those contrarians are being squeezed within the industry and those that are trend followers are being raised up. Um, you know, and I think clearly that you can model the individual risks of people. I mean, I think one of the things that's going to come out of this crisis in general is a sense that we need to understand how institutions, whether they be financial institutions or media or other institutions, how do they, what are their internal incentive structures? And I think certainly in the pitching process to editors, increasingly, um, you know, people don't want to be turned down. Um, they want to get as many stories in the paper as possible because they're very conscious they could lose their job if they, you know, and that people are, you know, as, as Sam Zell did when he went to the Chicago Tribune, they actually counted the column inches and fired those with the lowest numbers, which, you know, I mean, is, is about as bad an approach to journalism as you might want to take. I mean, you have changed the structure within the industry that, that favours maybe the conventional wisdom against the contrarian. And certainly the cost of funding investigative journalism with a very high probability of not discovering a story at the end of it is, is very high. And, and so if you're asked to make cuts, I imagine that the people that are most likely to be cut first off are the ones that aren't going to fill, aren't going to guarantee to fill pages. So I think, you know, I, I think that there is a tension there. But on the other hand, I do think that, um, it's a bit like in, in the model of the, the economic theories that were very dominant in terms of efficient market theory and so forth in the financial markets kind of assumed that those that had better information would always uh, be able to um, drive the noise traders out of the system. And in journalism, you kind of assume that would also be the case. Um, and there are certainly a lot of there are a lot of people who were presenting contrarian views to journalists during the bubble, um, and some of that stuff was getting published. Um, but you know, I think it's quite interesting that you know you can publish a story saying there's a bubble once or twice, but after you cut to the third or fourth time and the bubble's still getting bigger. Um, you know, you start to look like a bad journalist rather than an interesting contrarian one. So I just think all these different <laughs> factors that ought to lead to equilibrium haven't been, I'd, and, I'd, and some of them may be inherently unsolvable, but I still think you can go a long way by um, recognizing these tendencies and trying to create structures that work against them. We're going to open it up for questions, and uh, we do privilege students. So if there's a student in here that has a question, please. I'm a student. Yeah, please. Um, I also used to work for Merrill Lynch, um, which then became Bank of America and then to come here. Um, I think being a financial journalist is incredibly difficult for the reasons they just outlined. Um, and that is that the markets always seem to be right. And if you keep going against the markets, people are not going to listen to you. And there were several stories out there that they said that things were out of balance and, um, and uh, we had trouble ahead. No one quite predicted just how, it was going to, uh, just how bad it was going to be. Um, but I think there is an opportunity for financial reporters now is in looking back at the crisis and looking back at the things that caused the crisis and the need for structural reform, which seems to have fallen off the political agenda to a very large degree. And when you read the general and the, the financial press, it's barely mentioned any longer. And when it is mentioned, it's only mentioned in the context of what's been proposed out of DC. Where, where do you see that? I know the economist has done more work than most in this area. But where do you see the opportunity and the, the, the likelihood of financial journalists 
being able to drive the reform process going forward by looking back and doing what you do best. Um, you know, I think it's. A, I mean, one of the reasons I wrote the book was I. I did. I do worry that there will be a. You know, the pressures to get on with business as usual and pretend that nothing fundamental needs to change are very intense. That you have a lot of money coming out of Wall Street, and you have a lot of politicians that uh, were asleep at the switch or took money over the, the years from that lobbying organisation that will uh, want to sweep this under the carpet. I mean, I've been very intrigued to watch Hank Polson's book tour, where uh, so far he's been interviewed by Charlie Rose, uh, who is obviously a very fine journalist, but also um, uh, by Jeff Immelt, uh, the head of GE, who uh, were bailed out by Hank Polson, uh, by Warren Buffett, who may have been, I mean, not, not officially been bailed out, but certainly was helped, was brought into the, the process in interesting ways that were very helpful to Polson's uh, rescue operation. The, the, the big party in New York was hosted by Robert Rubin uh, for Hank Paulson. So I don't know, all, the, all these interesting alliances that emerge. Um, and, you know, I do think that the media, you know, the media is under enormous financial pressure at the moment. Um, you know, the, the advertising on television, you know, the television channels that cover finance are desperate for advertising. So the, the idea that there's going to be a, a lot of you know, really constructive debate, is, it, you know, it, it, it's, it's going to require journalism to, to dig deep and to go against maybe its short-term commercial interests. So um, on the other hand, you know, I do think The Economist has managed to build a growing readership in this environment by standing up for what we believe in. Um, so maybe the, the, there's lessons there for other organisations that actually the public that wants to um, that wants to engage in these issues is willing to pay a high price for for, for journalism that delivers that. Um, but our business model is very different from those of most other publications in, in that we rely much less on advertising and much more on direct payment from our own readers who really want to engage with us in what. In the, in the campaigns that we're engaged in. So, you know, I, I, it's a long rambling answer, but I think it gets to the difficulties that we're at. And my real worry and the reason I wanted to go into it in such length in the book was that I just feel that there are you know, profound changes needed in the way our system works. I mean, another area that we write about is pension funds, which to my mind are absolutely at the heart of the problem in that, you know, why are pension funds that are investing all our savings for our retirement, um, so fixated on short-term performance in the financial markets. Now, given it's still the norm for newspapers to run pages of daily share prices, um, and given um, much of the televised business media is focused on share trading, which is an activity that most economists would say to you, most individuals should not really engage in, um, and that secondly, our pension funds seem to be engaged in them far more than uh, makes any sense to me. Now, how do we get that debate going about what, how we can make pension funds operate in the long term? A, a really difficult question, not least because it's quite dull to many people, but <laughs> fundamentally beyond that, it is actually very important, and you know, maybe dull, dull, difficult questions are, are the order of the day, and they may not sell many uh, many papers or uh, 
feel much air, feel the airwaves. Please. Uh, there's one thing that you didn't mention. In financial journalism or economic journalism, more so than in any other branch, there's a received orthodoxy uh, which frames everything that you do. So the, the instance that you just mentioned, which is why do pension funds have a focus on chocolate and games as a received orthodoxy of financial theory? Uh, how can financial journalists sort of, if, however contrarian they might be by disposition, resist this received orthodoxy, uh, given that it's so strong and so broad? And what I've seen is that the only sort of alternative is the behavioral stuff, which is by Well, I, mean, I think the first thing is to recognize how challenging you know, the, the situation that the media is in really is. I mean, is that we are in a position, uh, in a situation where, you know, I think we got it very, very badly wrong in certain respects, that we were focused on uh, the short-term stuff, the stuff that generates lots of daily news and noise, and we weren't focused on, on some of this long-term stuff. So. Um, you know, I think even, you know, even to the extent that, say, we wrote about the Harvard Endowment, uh, it tended to be only because David Swenson uh, at Yale agreed, uh, decided he wanted to sell a book, and so suddenly his theories about how to run endowments were uh, in the press, and he was very, very briefly available before disappearing forever <laughs> into a wall of silence. And so, I mean, there isn't this, so, so, you know, in a sense, the journalists, we go where people are willing to talk us, for example, um, and the pension funds aren't generally willing to talk to journalists um, in any detail about what they're doing. Um, so again, the public need to know that, really. I, and I guess the question is, do, can we campaign more as, as media to actually open up parts of the economy to, to scrutiny and accountability? And, uh, and I, I don't know the answer to that. I guess I didn't ask my question. Mm. So I'm underpinning <coughs> the way pension funds invest this infrastructure of markets and, mm. and so forth. Nobody, nobody really wants to read about it. And uh, few journalists, I think, will go to the basics of why this particular mode of, of, of investment took place, rather than scandals and people losing money. Yeah, I, mean, I think there is a challenge to explain theory, complex theory, to the public. Um, yeah, I think you know, something. I think we do a decent job out for the economists. So we always do better. But again, one of the things that's interesting that, that we have a conception of our reader as a generalist, but an intelligent generalist. Whereas I think a lot of the financial media, most of its content is written for a very few, very specialist people, on the assumption that generalist readers won't be interested in most of the content. So there aren't that many people out there who are actually trying to explain. Uh, it's a portfolio theory, modern portfolio theory to, to the public. Um, there is a crisis, though, in modern. And to my mind, you know, the, the, I would have liked to have seen pension funds respond to their huge losses over the last two or three years by saying maybe our investment model was wrong, rather than, it seems to me, responding to it by actually accentuating their focus on short-term attempts to beat the market because they want to get back up as quickly as they can again. Likewise, I mean, I think 
the insights of um, people into index fund investing to the extent that buying an index fund is clearly, for most ordinary people, much the best strategy for investing in shares. But once you've written that insight once or twice, I mean, how many newspapers are you going to sell on that basis, whereas every day shares are up or down? I mean, I think this is the brilliance of CNBC is that they've realized that you can turn the markets into a sports show and every day they're going up or down and you can boo when they go down and cheer when they go up and it's um, I mean that makes much you know you actually get experts in or people who pretend they're, who really think they're experts but actually that's the public what the public really needs to know is you should all the, the teaching of economics appears to be the best thing to do about the markets is to hand your money over to an index fund and then largely most of you forget about what's going on and think about it as little as possible uh, but just make sure you're putting a reasonably high amount in and leaving it there. So I don't know how the fact that much good economics is fundamentally unnewsworthy and doesn't generate lots of ups and downs. That, that actually does create a problem for an industry that's based on trying to sell stuff every day. Now, John. Um, do you uh, think that the media might be get behind something like the um, Obama uh, Volcker uh, financial reforms, and uh, would this uh, 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 would this help the situation? And then, sort of second question: There's a theory that this theory that we're we're on an uptick, we're going to have another double dip, or we're going to have a steep smash. Is it going to take the third to get uh, religion and to see that this stuff doesn't go on like magic? I mean, uh, there are some very dire predictions, but you don't see them written too much. And, and yeah, just echoing what you say, but first of all, just on the reforms uh, proposed, uh, what kind of media support have you seen so far? Support's maybe the wrong word, but uh, coverage of them. Well, again, I mean, I think we're in a situation where we don't know the answer. I mean, no one who, anyone who claims to know what, what the right way out of this mess is, is, is you know, with any high degree of confidence, is you know, is, is deluding themselves and probably you as well. But um, so I don't know. I, I, can't, I can't pretend to know what's going to happen. Um, I think there are there's some problems with um, the Volcker plan. I mean, I you know I, I think the 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 way I would report on Volcker is more. Um, his sudden reappearance and, and the, 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 the political uh, circumstances of that where he'd basically been ignored for a year by the administration locked away in a cave somewhere deep in the White House and um, yeah, when seen complaining about how no one was listening to him and then suddenly the Obama administration loses a Senate seat and feels it needs to offer a policy um, and so they wheel him out and um, whether that actually um, I don't think what his policies are really are very pertinent to the, to the problems that, uh, that we're dealing with. Um, I mean, there's not much evidence that proprietary risk, tr proprietary trading per se actually caused the crisis. It's a bit like, um, I mean, I, I sort of view it a bit like uh, there are two different schools that are trying to turn the clock back. Volcker's trying to, they're trying to turn the clock back to 1934 uh, when the Securities Act came in after the last great uh, crash and then Wall Street wants to turn the clock back to 2004 when um, 
basically it could do what it liked and, make, and not think too hard about the problems out there. But actually what we need is a new set of regulations that, are, and, and that actually reflect the, the, the global economy that we're actually dealing with. Um, and I think one of the elements of that is that it is a global economy and that rules that just work in America or are designed just for America don't really stand much of a chance of solving the problems. And so you know, I think it's a hard sell to introduce the Volcker rule in America, let alone uh, to try and sell it in Germany where they have a very different banking model or Switzerland. Um, so I felt that had to be viewed as a political response rather than a serious attempt to grapple with the problems. The other broader issue, and I think you know, from me at The Economist, you know, we, we, we're, we're very much an organisation that believes that we should have something to say, that we should express our view of the news, that we do that based on very, very vigorous internal debate. Um, but that when we write it, when any of our journalists sets out to write a piece, they should exp they, they they go into it knowing that they're going to be expected to offer their opinion on what is the right way forward. Again, I think that's a different model of journalism to a lot of what's in the U.S. press, which tends to be that any debate there are two pe two sides. We have to identify those two sides and give both of them a chance to air their views. I think the danger of the, the, that second approach is that you end up with something. Uh, there was a, a study done when the Obama administration launched its stimulus package of the main network news coverages of that, which found that I believe it was only three out of 59 features on the stimulus package asked, is the stimulus big enough? Um, <coughs> which was a question a lot of economists were asking at the time. but. Uh, nobody in Washington seemed to, no, none of the politicians were asking. So the news coverage tended to be the two politicians, one saying, we need the stimulus, and the other saying, we don't need any stimulus at all. Um, rather than, I think, if you talked to economists and said, okay, there's a third element here, which is, uh, should the stimulus be bigger? Um, but the, the way that the, the talking, the, the debating heads approach to journalism uh, produced, uh, worked out was that it, you just ended up with this uh, actually very important argument ignored from the, dis uh, left out of the discussion. Right. still have a question. Yeah. Yeah, it's sort of related. Given that we're a school of government, uh, I'd like to focus on the, the assertions that you made that sometimes bad politics has a negative effect on the economy. Uh, do you think that uh, a solution is better financial literacy for politicians, or is the problem that political ideology screws up uh, financial information? And, and if so, what should a school of government be doing about it? I, I, mean, I do think that, I mean, that question goes to the heart of the, the, the issue. I mean, I, I, you know, it was, you know, I, I think that in some ways you can construct, you can construct a theory of why was there so little critical analysis of the deregulation proposals that, that came in over the past 20 years and that, that would go back and say, well, <coughs> somehow we allowed a very simplistic caricature of capitalism to enter the, the popular uh, language and discussion that was based on some combination of Reaganism and Thatcherism and the collapse of the Soviet Union that basically defined sort of markets as being somehow in a separate world from government altogether, rather than actually 
saying, well, actually, markets need to have effective government to, to work effectively. And so, as a result, people just didn't debate seriously um, what was going on, I mean, and so and what was being proposed, and almost any proposal for deregulation um, was accepted. Um, but then also, I mean, how does the media cover the whole sort of lobbying and financing, the financial corruption of, of Washington? I mean, particularly in the light of the Supreme Court decision recently. Um, <coughs> is that just a boring story? <coughs> you know, the fact is, I mean, obviously, Chris Dodd uh, received vast amounts of money from the financial services industry and as chairman of the Senate Finance Committee. He, he received a Friends of Angelo a special mortgage deal from the boss of Countrywide uh, Mortgage Company, um, you know, which you know, makes you wonder about the quality of the policy. Obama received money when he was a senator from AIG. So I don't know, it, the media doesn't, I mean, should that maybe, I mean, Britain, there's been this amazing uh, experience this year of the expense, of last year of the expenses scandal where. Um, you know, it was discovered how many of our politicians have been claiming to have their uh, you know, their moats cleaned and things like that <laughs> on the taxpayer <laughs> expense, or actually more seriously having you know flipping housing, having their mortgages paid by the taxpayer on their second house, and then trading at opportune moments in the market. So maybe the media need, here needs to actually start getting outraged by the, the financial corruption in Washington. I think the real story is corruption and not. Uh, the effect of ideology on on financial decisions or or uh, financial literacy of the people, the politicians who make the decisions. I think, I think these, these things. I think there's a whole series of things that have come together in this crisis. I think partly one of the things that I blame in the book is <laughs> this whole notion of the efficient market theory that kind of, and, and and the the rather simplistic caricature of the markets being good, government being bad, that has dominated our discussion for. 30, 25 years or so, and I think just was able to be used as a, an excuse for um, you know, not having serious debate. But you know, on the other hand, you, know, you take Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, um, you know, I think I wrote, first wrote about how they were a prob potential bomb in the economy in 99, and I certainly wasn't the first. The Wall Street Journal's consistently been writing about the problems that they pose. Um, even George Bush figured it out and tried to tried to rein them in somewhat. But yeah, you know, so, so you look in the media and you find look, there are stories about just quite how much those institutions have become a source of corruption within Washington and a, a place where politicians could find work uh, when they were out of office. But it didn't really, for some reason, the media wasn't able to turn that into something that really uh, touched public anger. And it may be that this crisis, all, I mean, I'm surprised in a way that this crisis hasn't provoked more populism and more anger. That's, and the, I think Washington has very effectively diverted attention <coughs> towards Wall Street and away from itself. Uh, but maybe, you know, we will see the much predicted but rarely delivered anti-incumbency uh, movement succeed this year will remains to be seen. But I do think there are, there are you know, this ought to be a huge wake-up call for the public and it ought to be a great opportunity for a, you know, a media that really was committed to 
to, to, to truth and to changing uh, a, a bad system to actually step up and write some great journalism. And I, you know, I do take some encouragement from the British experience where you know, there has been this attack on uh, the corrupt political class and you know, maybe we will see quite a lot of change in Britain. Um, <coughs> hard to, I'm already, as I say that, losing hope, but um, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Please, sorry, do you still have a question? Yeah, I, would, I was just, I mean, Hank Paulson spoke um, last night here, by the way, at the forum, and I was a bit surprised. It sort of came across as a victory lap, as though it was fantastic success. And, <clears throat> I mean, as far as I can tell, there's just, you know, a lot of problems just still exist. You just substitute public debt and private debt, and toxic assets are to a large extent still there, and unemployment is high, and people are not hiring, etc. But, I mean, my comment was sort of, you mentioned the, the sort of utility, possibly utility function, that the financial literacy of the, of, of the people would be very important to improving the, the ability of the media to shape policy and affect change. But it just seems to me that you, you mentioned so many constraints, that I, and I'm just wondering whether it's, it's really possible to, to expect people to become much more financially literate. I know myself, I'm, I'm a trained economist. I'm from Switzerland. And the post office is now refusing refusing to deliver by post a UBS annual report because it's 1,200 pages long. I go through it and I have a, I have a very difficult time understanding level one, level two, level three. It's just very complicated. Yeah, I suppose one of the things I want to really hammer home is that this we should be regarding this as a real crisis that, that requires really deep reflection and deep changes. And already I am very worried that people are trying to just muddle through. Um, so we've wasted a good and crisis. And we'll waste <laughs> a good crisis. Um, and we'll, uh, we may, you know, as a result, get another one sooner than we wish. Um, you know, and you're right, the Paulson book is extraordinary. I mean, <laughs> I mean, in some ways, it's an extraordinarily candid piece of writing. I mean, there's sort of constant anecdotes about his need to vomit and his... Uh, <laughs> inability to sleep and his refusal to accept sleeping tablets on religious grounds and things that make you kind of realize he's quite a complex figure. And, <laughs> um, you know, his, his constant turning to George Bush for support and uh, insight into the economy as well was also quite interesting reading. And, and it's sort of, I don't know, he, he, it's, uh, he, he does come across as a victory lap. And I do think this is part of this gathering of the clans of Wall Street and so forth. I mean, it plays very much as this, another book that's coming out soon, the Simon Johnson book by the former, I think one of the chief economists at the IMF, which really likens what's happened in America to the standard post-banking crisis model of uh, some of the most dysfunctional countries in the world, <laughs> where basically you know, the oligarchs somehow end up even more in control after the crisis they cause than they were beforehand. I mean, you can so, sort of see how that model might apply to America. I mean, I don't think. I mean, I'm, I'm not quite as cynical as that, but I do, I do. I can see how that case can seem quite plausible, actually. Um, and I do think the me the challenge is there. For the media to actually take this, very very seriously, um, and. You know, I, and, and, and I think, as you say, I've, I've, I've listed a number of, of constraints and reasons to fear that, particularly with the media as financially vulnerable as it is at the moment, 
that its its ability to be courageous is actually severely limited. What is the solution? Well, I mean, I think I think you know this is a wealthy country. Um, you know, I do I do look to the fact that people are willing to pay quite a lot of money each week to buy the Economist as a as a sign, but also the fact that I mean, the price of the Economist may seem like a lot, but it's no, no more than the price of a large latte. Um, and so, I mean, how 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 much should, I mean, how hard should it be to get people to pay for quality analysis and a campaign and a media that really gets to the bottom of things? But I think at the moment, the media. It's hard to find anyone in, in our industry that is not thinking very, very hard about you know, how do we save money. And so, um, you know, I think the public needs to understand that there is a crisis here and, and we need to explore ways of bringing more money in and making sure it goes to the part of the media that actually is about you know, improving the financial literacy of our system rather than uh, the entertainment side of it, which arguably is more pro-cyclical. Zephyr. Um, thanks for the talk. Uh, I was at a talk with Gretchen Morganson and a short seller and a few other people about five months ago. And so I'm going to stereotype what she said, but I'd be interested. Um, one of the things she was arguing is that access actually was not important for good financial journalism. And that, so you know, if you look at the access model, that she thought that you know, in running a newsroom, that should be less valid. However, it's very important for Washington uh, reporting. And so that given that the story is now moving to Washington. I'm intrigued that Gretchen, of all people, would say that. Right. So, anyway, so uh, setting sorry. aside the stereotype, do you, I mean, when you're running and uh, how important, you re responded a few times in terms of the importance of access, how important do you think access is for actually writing the best stories? <clears throat> um, well, I mean, I think journalism relies on people talking to journalists. Um, I mean, very very few stories come from journalists or sitting there and thinking it through. Um, and so I do I do think that she she gets a lot of stories, for example, from uh, people who from academics that are, and from the hedge fund short community. And so, you know, that which in itself presents challenges to journalists because, you know, someone comes to you and tells you something, some company is in trouble, and they've clearly got a financial incentive in telling you that. And so, you know, do, do we as journalists have the necessary technical skills to be able to meet, reach a judgment on that? I mean, someone was, I think if you look at the CNBC's coverage of Bear Stearns and the week before it um, had to be rescued, um, David Faber, who's very rightly well-respected journalist, was going on screen saying that he had been told by a hedge fund that Bear Stearns was not getting funding from uh, other Wall Street banks. Um, I think people at Bear Stearns say that that particular report um, was very critical in Bear Stearns very quickly you know, getting to the point of bankruptcy where it would have ended up had it not been rescued. And that was you know, one hedge fund source. Um, and I'm sure he was told that by a hedge fund. I'm sure he didn't make it up. But on the other hand, how can you test that? And should you know that news was probably out in the market, so you can say, well, it was he was doing his job as a reporter, reporting what was going on in the market. But on the other hand, the effect of him actually saying this in the middle of an interview with the CFO of Bear Stearns or the senior executive of Bear Stearns, you know, that that made that took something that was in the market and just made it so much 
bigger and actually was directly involved, I think, in worsening the crisis. Now, I just don't... So, I mean, this is... I'm going off on a tangent from what you asked me, but I think there's um, a lot of really complicated issues around that. But, yeah, I just... I think that companies in... You know, companies do control access. Um, the private equity and hedge funds control it even more than public companies. Um, and the journalists you know, have often had to rely on financial analysts and so-called experts as their intermediaries. But you know, I think one of the things that became very clear in the dot-com uh, bubble was how much the analyst community had become corrupted, so the sell-side analysts. So you actually were, I think there was a statistic that showed that, I know, over 68% yeah, of recommendations were buy, 1.4% were sell. Um, and, you know, that was a change. In the early 1980s, it tended to be pretty even between sell and buy. And so, you know, you look at who, who else do journalists go to? Well, they might go to consulting firms like McKinsey or whatever, but McKinsey will only give you stuff um, off the record. Uh, because they don't want to expose their clients. And so, uh, again, you know, I, people, I think, have to build up quite a degree of trust before they can get candor out of some of those intermediary sources. And if you're in that trusting position, you know, there's, there becomes a point where if you keep, where someone gives you stuff and you don't use it, they say, well, I'm not gonna, not gonna give it to you anymore. So I think there are all sorts of difficult challenges in, in the business world, whereas, in politics, I think there is a. I mean, I, I guess. I guess the the the, the stuff with uh, the New York Times and Iraq and uh, Scooter Libby, kind of created this image of journalists relying on no leaks and sources inside, uh, which you know is clearly untrue. And there's a lot of private briefing going on and access in politics. But there is also an expectation that politicians do have a duty of. Uh, explaining their actions to the public, which many in business, you know, quite frank, you know, particularly the private equity world, don't feel they have any obligation to talk to the public whatsoever. And in fact, that's, that's one of the strengths of their model is that they don't have to tell you what they're doing. Um, so I think, you know, I think the real challenge is how do we, I mean, given again that private equity and hedge funds, a large part of their money is coming from public pension funds, and, and which is our money, our retirement money. Why do they, why, why are our pension funds deliberately creating a structure or funding a structure that actually removes accountability to the public from the system? Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned in, in response to one of the other questions something about the media needs to become outraged or more outraged by things going on, corruption, conflict, etc. You don't seem to do outrage, and the, the, the economist doesn't seem to really do outrage, which is not necessarily a critical point, just an observation. And you mentioned in relation to Krugman, kind of your attitude towards him seems to be, I don't know exactly what it is, but he certainly did outrage. He was one of the few to do that before others did. Matt Taibbi's story, also another example perhaps of outrage. Morgenstern's um, work is, is shows that too. Is there more of a place for that kind of outrage, which in a way is a kind of crusading, actually, and a place for perhaps more of a crusading form of financial journalism to, to get people to respond to raise the alarm bells? 
I'm not sure we don't do outrage. We do it in a kind of restrained British way. You know, we put Berlusconi on the cover of The Economist with this man is not fit to leave Italy, lead Italy. We've, you know, after the Cancun uh, round of the World Trade Organization <laughs> talks failed, we put a cactus doing a finger uh, to the world with the message of Cancun. I mean, they're, they're, you know, we've, we've not, I mean, it may, may be not be, you know, quite as sort of grrr, sort of angry sounding as, as it, but I mean, we actually do feel things very strongly and I think we, we very much upset Larry Summers uh, when we had um, a picture of Obama uh, as a vandal on the front over the uh, trade restrictions with China that he brought in saying he was really threatening to create a trade war and they were, they were furious in the administration uh, with what they saw as our overreaction to um, to that, um, and we, you know, again, we put a, we did a cover story on how America's uh, sex laws are far too uh, oppressive uh, because they a lot of them are, you know, really leading to massive injustices in terms of people people's lives, and so you know, those those sorts of things, you know, we do actually have very strong controversial opinions. Maybe just our tone doesn't convey that. Yeah, that, that passion, and you know, and I think what what you know we like. To, I mean, we we try to be rational in in our anger, um, and so I do think that we're very conscious that after bubbles and crashes, you tend to get a lot of uh, scapegoating. You tend to get a lot of blame game, and so we don't want to indulge in in that. And I think you know, you look at some of the stuff about bonuses on Wall Street, you know, which is clearly a deflection strategy by the politicians um, and not a serious discussion at all. And so we don't want to engage in, in that. But we do feel in many ways, I mean, I feel personally hugely let down by the leadership of Wall Street. And I, you know, I do think they, you know, it's kind of a fascinating sight to see Goldman Sachs just completely, which is after all made up of many of the greatest people in you know, the finest products of the American global education system, um, you know, unable to cope with the fact that the world that they're in has, has changed and unable to engage in, art, in, in a dialogue with that world. I mean, it's kind of interesting. And Goldman Sachs? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think there are, you know, th th this is a group of people who are just outstanding in everything that they've done in their lives. And they cannot understand why everyone hates them all of a sudden, um, and it's kind of really interesting. As a, but I don't, and, I, and I feel both sympathy. You know, I feel sympathy, but also anger towards them because I mean they had an opportunity to actually articulate a different view of Wall Street to the world a year ago, which they've missed. I mean they could have actually. But been how could they articulate a different view when what they are represents so much of what is the problem? Well, that's the. But I do think they could have recognised. So they, they as a company, have still they still deny that they would have gone bust, and they still deny that they were bailed out by by the government, which you know I you know I think is just wrong. And and had they uh, had they actually accepted that, I think a number of steps would have followed from it. Like they wouldn't they would have said well, we should give away a lot of our money that this year because we've made that money because the government the taxpayer has come to the rescue, and, but they, they are incapable of seeing that their own success is not their, the result of their own 
genius. And so <laughs> it's kind of, it is, it, it is it's, it's, it's a very interesting story. And it's interesting. We debated internally at The Economist, why did we not write the story that Rolling Stone wrote? Yeah, why is that? And actually, you look at the Rolling Stone story, and it, it's, you know, it isn't a very good piece of journalism. I mean, this is the difficulty. It's not, but it, it was very good, and it, 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 it was viscerally a great piece of journalism because it, it just said what, what needed to be said. But it's the individual paragraphs of the story. I mean, there's just a lot of stuff that would, wouldn't get through our editing process. But, but. The, there's a question which gets back to your question. Well, why did we not? Uh, you know, why 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 did it take an outsider writing for a, a Rolling Stone magazine to actually say what all the journalists who've been covering Wall Street for years should have should have said? But maybe I mean, is the answer? And I mean, Matt Taibbi probably wouldn't use the word outstanding in relation to Goldman Sachs, except for his description of kind of the degree to which it was a major player in bringing down. Global financial system. And right, and I don't think they were. I mean, I think that they weren't. The, I mean, the irony with Goldman Sachs is that they're probably now in the firing line more because of how they behaved since the collapse than how they behaved before. I mean, they did obviously, they were part of, they probably did sell some of the worst subprime mortgage products, but on uh, securities. But on the other hand, they, you know, their risk management systems were much better than. Most of those that got that, that got caught in the in the sort of vortex when it all went wrong, so they weren't as badly run as Lehman Brothers or Bank of America or Merrill Lynch. And so, I mean, again, we're getting into this becomes quite a complicated story. But I, you know, I don't. I think that on the substance of what he wrote, and it'll be interesting because I mean, I'm, I'm one of the judges of the Loeb Awards, which is for financial business journalism. I mean, I imagine that we will have to that that, that 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 article will be submitted, and I'd be amazed if we didn't get to consider it on the shortlist. Whether we could claim that, whether we could, whether you could award a prize to a piece that has so many factual issues in it, um, you know, and yet clearly changed the whole way the media has covered the preeminent financial firm of our age, is, is going to be a very interesting question, challenge for us as judges, I think. Well, we've come to the one o'clock hour, and uh, Matthew Bishop, thank you so much. Thank you.